and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Man, I love my church family, seeing those faces out there. Uh, I just love worshiping with you guys. Uh, one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who a God who plans, who purchases, who guarantees our salvation. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, God said, I'm coming to the world to save my lost children. When I didn't care who he was, he called me to life in him. He chose me. And if you were in Christ Jesus, he chose you too. That's the That's the God we worship this morning. That's why you see tears at times up here and next to you because we can't claim that we saved ourselves, can we? I mean, he did it all. And he has brought me to faith in Christ Jesus. Well, if you're new here, my name is Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here among several gifted guys. Man, I don't know how I got into this group of guys, but we're... uh, Excited to be here and preach to you this morning. Uh, we're honored. I, I I would love to meet you if you're new. Uh, I'll be outside after the gathering, just on the sidewalk in front of that front door. I'd love to say hello. Just kind of shake your hand, answer any questions I can, introduce myself. Well, we study the Bible here at Mentry, so if you are new. Um, Go ahead and get your Bibles out. You can get it on your phone, or if you brought your Bible, we'll be in John chapter 5. But before we get started with the time of prayer even, or preaching, let's just spend a few minutes in a time of repentance. So go ahead and bow your heads. Just kind of enter into this kind of an attitude of prayer. And let just each person prepare ourselves for receiving from God as we read and study this this passage together. Here's how we do that. Is there a worry on your heart right now that's on your mind that you need to give up before we get started? Take just a moment and do that. Is there some anxiety that's kind of nameless, just kind of nagging at you? Maybe you can't even name what it is, but just... Give that up and pray and say, God, I just give up this anxiety. Choose to not think about that and choose to rest in Christ Jesus. Well, if there's a relationship that maybe you need to forgive someone who's hurt you, maybe they don't even know, but you need to forgive them. Or maybe there's someone you need to go seek forgiveness from. Go ahead and commit to do that now or or forgive that person you need to forgive. Now, all of these are important, but this is a big one. Do you have some unconfessed sin that you just need to turn over to God today? You need to repent of. Give it to the Lord. Follow him again instead of pursuing that sin. God, our Father in heaven, we turn our attention to you, to your words of scripture. God, These are life to us. This is light in our dark world. Help us to receive your words in our hearts and in our minds. And in the process, God, we pray that you change the way we actually think to match your words. Change the way we feel inside us, that our emotions would match what is true, not what we think is true. God, if we have something that we believe that doesn't just match up perfectly with your words in scripture, we pray that you would help us, God, to match what you are telling us is true. Change us. But God, knowledge is not just what we're seeking, even wisdom. But God, we we want wisdom, yes, but what we truly want is we want you. We want a relationship, God, with, with you through your son as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds this morning. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, we normally work our way through kind of whole books 
of the Bible, and it takes us a long time to do that. We kind of go verse by verse. Uh, we do it slowly but surely, but right now, we're carefully going through the Gospel of John chapter 5. In fact, you can turn there, and then we'll be there, and in Hebrews chapter 4 as well. But we pause for just, just a bit, just a bit. For a moving forward in the storyline of Jesus' life, we're going to take a closer look at what we see in this so we can fully more understand what this thing is called the Sabbath. It's on Saturday. We know Saturday, uh, you could say Sabbath or Shabbat. But what is this in Scripture? Now, we looked at this a little bit last week. If you missed last week or any week in the series, you can go back and pick that up on in audio, anywhere you get a podcast, right? You can just download that. Or you can go on Facebook and watch my pretty face if you want a video. So in John 5, we've been studying the third sign the apostle John describes about who Jesus is. This sign is a healing of a man who's been laying 38 years in the heart's um, the heart of him, he's been there thinking, I want to be saved, but he's looking to the wrong thing. Jesus heals him, but he does it. He heals him on the Sabbath day, a Saturday. And that triggers this, John 5, verse 16. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And when we say persecuting, by the way, we mean kill. They start to try to kill him. Because what we saw last week is that this commandment to keep the Sabbath holy had been given by God to his people, the Hebrews, smack dab in the middle of the Ten Commandments, or what we call the moral law. And although we, believers in Jesus Christ, are not under that law as a penalty for our sins anymore, since our sins have been forgiven by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross... Jesus does tell us that if we love him, we will keep his commands. That's what Jesus said. That's not to save us, but because we are saved. Those moral commands become a joy for us to keep, not a burden. Now, last week, we walked through the origins and the history of the Sabbath commanded and all that it entailed. This week, what I want us to do is look at the question, what does keeping the Sabbath mean for us now as Christians? And then ultimately, what does it mean? Are we bound by the Sabbath? Should we keep it? And if so, when should we keep it? Well, as we think back on what we've studied, let's review for a little bit. There's three key things. We studied a lot, but three key things. And I'd like you to write these down. Uh, do this. Number one, write this down. Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. You can throw these in the notes if you don't have anything to write with. Throw them in the notes on your phone. Just open that. Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. Now think about that. Lord of the Sabbath, that's a title, right? In other words, he is the lawgiver of the Sabbath, and that means he is greater than the thing he gave, the Sabbath. In a way, he's saying, I am God, I wrote the law. Number two. Jesus teaches us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus teaches us that Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now remember that we learn from Jesus that the way the religious leaders during that time had piled on an extra 39 rules, kind of man-made rules, on this one command of keeping the Sabbath. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God had instituted the Sabbath as this blessing to man in that it gave mankind this opportunity to each week rest physically and worship him on one day and in that Remember and this what God has brought about in this creation. All right, number three. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. 
And that's the most important thing to remember about the Sabbath is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Remember, rest in peace, Christian tombstones that says RIP for short, rest in peace, meaning that those who believe in Christ Jesus, when we die, we are finally at rest with Jesus. That doesn't mean like we're asleep at night, resting in our little casket. This kind of rest means that we are finally fully alive in Christ Jesus. Last week, we ended this with a passage to help us just understand the scripture more. Let's go back there for this week. I mean, we're in John 5, but we're going to go to a different passage. Before we read it, though, I want us to remember the author of this book, Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to be turning to that. I want to kind of set up what this is talking about. This is using a picture from the Old Testament of God's people being led out of Egyptian slavery across the Red Sea that he parts and into the wilderness. Back in Egyptian days, God promises his people, he says, if you'll follow my commands, then I will lead you to a promised land, a land of rest. But what had happened? Well, they sinned along the way, right? They couldn't help it in their fallen condition. It was not possible for them to not sin. And guess what? We suffer from the same thing, right? Original sin. And instead of a two-week journey through the desert, through this wilderness, they, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, And ultimately they died, except for just two guys that were faithful to the end, Joshua and Caleb. The people would eventually, their ancestors, their kids would take possession of the land, the promised land. But their hearts were never fully devoted to God. They, like us, still wrestled with sin every day. But God had promised his people that he would lead them to this promised land. Now let me clue you in on something very, very important. When you read the Old Testament, and particularly prophecy, sometimes there is the fulfillment of the prophecy in the short term or the near term of when the prophecy was made or when it was given. But then we see the prophecy sometimes that is much bigger, the fulfillment takes place in the longer term, sometimes a lot longer term. One fulfillment usually meant the possibility that they would occur the first time in the short term in a smaller way, but still fulfilled, but then a second fulfillment in a much deeper way, much broader way. For instance, you know this one, Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesies, he says a child will be born as a sign, and that is fulfilled in the short term, in the impending destruction of Rezin by King Tegleth Pelesir the third, And you go, oh, that's great. I'm fulfilled now. That was the short term. But you know this prophecy, don't you? If you've ever read Isaiah 7, we hear it at Christmas. Because that's where we see more completely the fulfilling of the prophecy of the birth of Christ. That the child would be born of a virgin. Theologians call that Dual fulfillment. Write this down. Dual fulfillment, the doctrine that states that Old Testament prophecy can have both a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. Dual fulfillment. The doctrine that states the Old Testament prophecy can have both a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. Many of the examples we could look at in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the Old Testament. Like the prophecy was made, it was fulfilled not too long after. But their ultimate fulfillment, they're messianic. Meaning they point to the future fulfillment in the person we call Christ. Or what the Hebrews would say is the Messiah. Dual fulfillments of prophecy are often related to concept of messianic typology of the Old Testament. In other words, when they're saying, here is the coming of the Messiah. Or in other words, we could say this. We see Jesus more completely revealed in the Old Testament. Looking over here, when we look at 
who is, was prophesied, then we read about it in the New Testament. Do you see what I mean? And this is deep, though it's a deep thought, but ultimately, here's what I want you to get. All the Old Testament prophecy have their fulfillment ultimately in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, with remembering all of that and applying it to John 5, when Jesus heals the lame man on the Sabbath, let's take a look at Hebrews 4 and some other passages that we'll add in there as well to see if we can dive at the deeper meaning of this, kind of like drill down and find the gold. Does that make sense? We're still in the same series, just studying John, but we're just going to be drilling deeper on this important topic of the Sabbath. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read from our passage? We're going to use to drill down on the meaning of the Sabbath. By the way, remember, when I say, uh, when I get to the end of reading this, I'll say, this is the word of God. And then you say, thanks be to God. Make sense? Got that part? And I want it hearty, not like, thank God. I want you to like, thanks be to God. Okay, here it is. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Again. In that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day. Today, he specified this, speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. This is the word of God. Good job. Let's have a look at this. You can go ahead and have a seat. Start with verse one on this. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. The promise to God's people is still here. It's still present. The offer God makes is still good to enter his rest. Now remember, when we hear the word rest, from here on out, think eternal relationship with Jesus in heaven. Think rest. Well, that's when true life, true reality, the true world, the true purpose in life really begins for us. When we enter that rest. Without the weight of sin, without the weight of suffering, Without temptation. Now, the second half of that verse, check this out. When it says, Let's, uh, let us beware none of you be found to have fallen short. Here's what that means. Let us be very careful as we walk this Christian life. That's what it means. That none of us get the wrong idea in our head that you have missed somehow the eternal rest. In other words, the offer of salvation is still open to all those who would believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The problem is that the author of Hebrew is addressing here is that some false teachers, back when he was writing this, it kind of inched their way into the church 
And they had said, oh, Jesus has already returned. And, and you've all missed it. Like salvation, eternal life, sorry, like that boat left the dock already. The train left the station, you're, you're in trouble. But this verse is saying, look, that's not true. But here is where we find a key, Christ, key to Christian living through the promise of the Sabbath. Now watch, write this down. As Christians, we are living in the in-between. As Christians, we are living in the in-between. Now, no, you may not get this yet. And if you get it, you get it big. The in-between in the sense that we live in this overlap of this present age and the age to come. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the birth of Christ. God became man. But it will not be fully consummated until he returns and takes us home to his glory. For those that have been born again, our freedom from sin and death has been purchased by Christ on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Now let's relate that back to the story from the Old Testament. We started with where Israel, God's people, have been set free from the bondage, slavery they were in in Egypt. You with me? Moses had instructed the people to sacrifice a year-old lamb. This is while they were still in captivity. A year-old baby lamb that they'd kept with, with them in the house for a week before. They cut its throat. They drained the blood and took some hyssop and they put the blood of the goat across the doorframe of the outside of the house as a sign. Do you remember this? Moses had warned the Egyptian Pharaoh. He said that if you do not let the Hebrew people go, an angel of God will kill every firstborn male in the land, both old men and young, human and animal. But we're told that when the angel would see the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost of the house of the Hebrews, that this angel of death would pass over that house. Everyone in that house would be saved because they saw the blood. The blood protected them. Israel, they had been spared from the judgment that had then been poured out on Egypt. Then Moses, at the command of God's uh, at the command of God, leads God's people out of Egypt that very night. The land of the Hebrews, slavery, he says, God goes, lead them out of there. But right away, they are pursued by the Egyptian army. And Pharaoh, he's changed his mind. They're in their chariots chasing them. They are caught between the pursuing army and the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. Well, you know the story, don't you? God parts the Red Sea for his people, and Moses leads his people across on dry land. But when the Egyptian army tries to do the same and capture the people, God drowns the army and his people are saved. Praise God. Amen? Now Moses begins to lead God's people into what the Bible describes as the wilderness. A desert. You could call this land the land of the in-between. And it's there that God gives his law to his people of how they should live their life from here on out. So if you're going to be Jewish, this is how you do it. The law was given there to set God's people apart from every other nation. Everyone else was the same. He said, this is what you need to do if you're going to enter the land that I promised your forefather Abraham more than 500 years before. They're on their way to the promised land. They have the law. But on their way, because of their continued sin and unwillingness to follow the commands of God, God says, because of your sin, you will not enter the land promised to you. He tells them that they will die in the wilderness, the desert, and it will be their children that will eventually enter the land. Finally, after 40 years of living in the desert in the in-between from Egypt and the promised land, the descendants of those people enter the promised land after the last one dies, except for Joshua and Caleb. What's interesting is they pass one more body of water, the Jordan River. God parts that for them as well. They walk through on dry land. Now, this is a thumbnail sketch of what just happened to God's people. And it's, if you were a believer, it's what's happening to you right now. 
translate that to our situation as Christians, looking forward to the promise of heaven one day, or when Jesus returns and takes us back. Use that story of Israel, then compare it to your walk with Jesus right now. We've been set free by the blood of the Lamb, right? Jesus nailed to the cross, his blood spilt for the forgiveness of the sins of all those who would believe. His people. We don't face judgment because of the blood of Jesus shed on that cross. It's like the blood over the doorpost. You see the similarity? We are baptized then. As Christians, that's one of the first things we do. What's that like? It's like the Israelites going through the Red Sea. You see it? We begin our journey then in the wilderness, this in-between place. We are in-between because we are not in slavery anymore, like the Israelites in Egypt. And we're not in heaven yet, our promised land. We're still on our way, and it's tough. We're in the desert, the wilderness of this world. God is providing for us, for sure. He meets our needs just like he did the Israelites, provides us our bread, our our housing, our, our life, and yet this world is a place of suffering, isn't it? It's hard. And yet, with God's help, we persevere. Amen? How do we persevere? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. He leads us by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to a promised land to find true rest in Christ Jesus. And remember when we say rest, we're not talking sleeping. Finally, we will cross over the final river, our physical death, then we will be home. Do you see what we mean here? We're living in the in-between. We have been saved, yes, but we're not in our final destination. And this life, well, it's hard, but we're keeping our eyes on Jesus until he leads us safely home. Here, here, here's, here's a picture I want you to think through. A Christian has two waters to cross, the Red Sea and the Jordan River. When we are born again, justified by grace through faith and adopted into the family of God, we cross the Red Sea. We are free from the penalty of sin. That's our baptism, right? You see that? By the way, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, it's very important to get baptized and do it soon if you have never done it. As a believer, it's important. Get it done. Then we travel through the rest of our lives in this sin-sick world as aliens, as pilgrims. This is not our home. We've been freed from the power of sin and sanctification in the power of the Holy Spirit. And while we are in the in-between that we live here now, God uses, check this out, he uses the actual suffering and all the junk Satan throws at us to begin to refine us into the people to teach us who he is and how we must trust him for everything. Finally, we die. We cross over the Jordan River. You get that picture? We enter his rest, freed from the presence of sin into glorification. Praise God. But meanwhile, make no mistake, we are in a sin-fallen world and this place is jacked up. Here's the way I want you to think about this. If you are a Christ follower, like if you have placed your faith in Jesus as both Savior and Lord, think of your salvation like this. Write this down. We have been saved. Amen? We have been saved. We always want to ask ourselves every day, have we been saved? What's the proof of it in my life? One of the things you can say right away is, Have I been baptized? Oh yeah, I remember it. Because if we haven't been saved, like the scripture we read in Hebrews 7, when it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Take care of that need. Like, move on this. Get off of first base. Move, run. This is... This is some urgency that the Bible is talking about to trust in Jesus as your Savior. But we, those who are saved, also ask this. When we are going through difficult times, we look back and say, yes, I was saved back then. 
and I remember my baptism. I remember that I trusted Christ and that my sins were washed away. I have been saved. But then we add this. We are being saved. We are being saved. For those of you who are Christians, you were saved in the past when you trusted Jesus, right? But you're being saved right now in this moment. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, interceding on the behalf of the elect, we're told. Those chosen by God. That's the title the Bible uses for Christians. It says elect over and over. It only says Christian once, by the way. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Romans 8.33. Check this out. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Talking about Christians. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of so- or sword? God is the one who elects. The word elects simply means chosen. Just like when you elect someone in, a, in an election, right? You choose a candidate. Simply means God chooses. God chooses us. He, look, justifies us through nothing of our own self. It's all from him. He calls us to life in Christ Jesus. And remember, justification, that's a legal term. That simply means that I have been declared righteous Not because I was somehow righteous, but because of, or not because of what I decided to do, but simply because Jesus says, he's righteous. He's been justified. But then remember, when we are saying we are being saved, right? That is our sanctification compared to our justification, The process in sanctification is by which a Christian is made to look more like Jesus through the lifelong process of ups and downs. It is very much we ourselves with the Holy Spirit of God himself working in our hearts to refine us and make us more like Jesus. Sanctification is the slow process of the ups and the downs, the sufferings and the pain, the good times in conjunction with the rest of the body of Christ where we we are made to look more like Jesus in how we live our lives. Now look, when we have those hard times in life and maybe have doubts, I have doubts, doubts about your salvation, we can always remember we have been saved. We are being saved right now. Jesus is literally arguing on our behalf. He's interceding. Satan's going, look, uh, that guy's evil. Jesus is going, no, no, no. That's one of mine. I, I paid for all his sin. Look at this. We will be saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Somebody say amen. This is what we're looking for right here. In other words, we aren't there yet, but we're on our way. Because the day is set. We don't know when it is, but the day is set. Do you remember a few months back when we looked at what theologians call the golden chain of salvation? Raise your hand if you remember that, the golden chain. Let's look at it again for just a moment. Romans 8, 28 through 30 The Apostle Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Remember justified. 
And those he justified, he also glorified. Whoo, this is good stuff right here. Do you see the golden chain of salvation? Do you see it? You see that I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. Jesus is coming back for me. Because praise God, Christ is returning for all those who believe. Let's go back to Hebrews 2. I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, verse 2. For we also have received the good news, that's the gospel, just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. Now remember, this is about the Jews in the desert trying to get to the rest in the promised land. In their unbelief, they failed to take advantage of God's offer of rest. They died on the way. They died in the desert. By comparing that to us, those of us who have been made alive in Christ Jesus, the invitation to God's eternal rest, listen to me, is still there. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he said. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. Now look at that first part there. When we exercise our faith and believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, that faith that has been given to us by God himself is this prerequisite for entrance into heavenly rest. Wouldn't you say that? Got to be a Christian to get into heaven. But look at this part, the second part. God says, but I swore in my anger, they will never or not enter my rest. For those who failed, remember he's talking about the, the Jews in the desert, failed to exercise faith in God's promise to bring them safely into the land. God declared, no, you will not enter my rest. But notice that last little part there. Even though his works, God's works, have been finished since the foundation of the world. Now, when did this event, the exclusion of those who failed to enter the promised land because of the unbelief, when did that occur? It says it, says it right here, doesn't it? It, as well as everything in history that God has, to de- has decreed to occur, was a done deal when God stepped back and rested from all at the very foundation of the world. What does that mean? Verse 4 and 5 gives us a clue. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Do you see this? The writer of Hebrews is linking together God's Sabbath rest all the way back to the creation to the rest that the Israelites missed in the desert on the seventh day when God rested, he finished his creative activity, right? He stopped creating. He worked for six days creating, then he rested. Likewise, the Israelites were to work and finish the journey, but they didn't. They missed it. So God says they will never enter my rest. The rest was at the end of the journey, wasn't it? Kind of like a Sabbath day at the end of the week. The rest, the promised land, was at the end of the journey. So, verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Now, just because the Hebrews failed in their faith, it doesn't nullify the truth that some will still enter that rest. If you were to look at Psalm 95, don't go there right now, but this is what it's talking about. Psalm 95, written later in the reign of the great King David, is about this exact thing. That's what it's quoting. That's where these quotes are coming from that the author of Hebrews is pulling out. So look at verse 7. He again specifies a certain day. Today, 
He specifies this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is cool. Please don't miss this. He, meaning God, specifies a certain day for you to believe. If I were reading in Psalm 95 or this, uh, or wherever you hear the gospel, let's just say when the gospel is read to you, told to you, shared to you, preached to you from the, and the Holy Spirit quickens you and brings you to life in Christ, we call that being born again, regenerated. This opportunity to all the hearers of the gospel or the readers today becomes their own today when the gospel becomes real. When you believe. When we, when we read that part, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The author is restating from Psalm 95. He's repeating it from the previous chapter as well. In fact, flip back to Hebrews 3 for just a second. Look at verse 12. He says, watch out, brothers and sisters. So we know he's talking to Christians, right? Brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Look what hardens you. Sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In other words, every believer should pay careful attention to guard against living a sinful life which leads to an unbelieving heart. Now please stay with me. Let me give you a strong, strong warning. We need a warning sound. Me, me, me. Strong warning. Ready? If you are saved, if you were in Christ Jesus, you do not lose your salvation ever. But it sure feels like it. Sometimes when we let sin slip in, And we start slipping back to our old ways. And we're saved, but golly, we're not living like it. And we certainly don't feel like it. But then when we hear Hebrews, this is not not a salvation issue. Because we, we have been saved. We are being saved. This, my friends, is a sanctification issue. In other words, the way you're living is not matching with what you say you believe. And it's either A, you are saved, but you're just not following Jesus in obedience, and it's making you miserable. (laughs) Or B, you were never, never saved to begin with, and you need to take care of that now and believe. But it's that problem with A that many of you in this room wrestle with. That's what the Israelites had done. They believed at least in part God had delivered them. They believed that. They were God's people. They had seen, look, they had seen all this stuff. They had seen God part the Red Sea. They got manna. They got bread every day for 40 years. There was water for 2 million people in the desert. Folks, that doesn't happen without God. This is for us as well. If we let sin creep in, sin can make us harden our hearts. We don't lose our salvation, but listen to what we do lose, becoming more like Jesus. We never become the person God intended us to be. We'll get into heaven, but man, it's like you missed the boat of becoming everything God designed you to be. Do you know what will counteract this? Do, would you like to know? The church gathered. What do I mean? What's the church gathered? Because when we're together, I'm talking Sunday right now, is where we experience the reality of the kingdom of God. Certainly not perfectly, but truly we experience 
his kingdom until he returns. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about you, the body of Christ, the believers together. When we are connected in the body with fellow believers, we can stop that slide into sin that we're prone to. Like we're in a D3 group, it's hard to not be real honest with them. Like, you know that sin I've been struggling with? Well, I fell into it. Can you repent of it? Yeah, I can. Would you hold me accountable? Yeah, we will. The desperation that we see here, the urgency when it says, as long as it is called today, could be translated while you still have the opportunity. What does that mean? Before you die. Brothers and sisters, this is why I beg you. No, 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 no. No, I plead with you. Don't pull away from the body of Christ, the church. Don't keep the body of believers at arm's length and go, yeah, I'm part of the body, I just don't know anybody. Don't treat church attendance like something that's performed for you up here. Like I, I preach and you get that. The guys sing and you get that. And you go home, I go, I feel pretty good. But then no one knows you. You've not been vulnerable. You're not serving as the part of the body of Christ you've designed to be. We be part of the body so you don't, so you don't harden your heart. That's why we always say and see every believer that we read about in the New Testament church is part of a local body, a member of that body. You get what I'm saying? There's not even one example in the Bible of someone that's going, well, I just am a part of the church, but no one knows me. I'm not a member. I just kind of go to all the churches. That's a wrong concept, wrong doctrine. Get that stinking thought out of your head because you need a family to be a part of. While you still have the opportunity, get involved with the D3 group. Connect and serve here on Sundays. Go to one service and then serve a service. Get to know people at a deeper level. Invite people into your heart. Now listen, that's painful. I can tell you over and over how many times I've been damaged by that. And yet it's good. God will still use even the hurt that people will hurt you with. All right, back to Hebrews 4, verses 8 through 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. This gets me excited. Therefore, the Sabbath rest remains for God's people. Someone say amen. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Now, let's relate that back to how we view the Sabbath and its observance. When we believe in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, in a very real sense, we are dying to our old sinful life. We are then united with Christ and enter into union with Christ. Christ died on the cross. And we died with him. That's because Jesus, as our representative, we could describe Jesus as our federal head. What that means is when he kept the law perfectly, We kept the law perfectly. When he died on the cross for sin, we died on the cross for our sin. When he was resurrected from the dead, we shall be resurrected from the dead. That's the entire picture of baptism right there. That old you, the old you, I take the old you and I shove you under the water because you're dead. We bury dead people. But then we raise up the new person alive in Christ Jesus. Listen to the passage from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Talking about people who have already died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Now stay close with me. We're in some thick stuff here. I don't want to lose you. 
When Christ died on the cross, his final words were, it is finished. You know how you can also translate that? Paid in full. Christ rests from his work, the God the Father's plan of redemption. But when Christ Jesus is raised back to life by God the Father on the morning of the third day, that can be seen as God's acceptance of all Christ Jesus had done, coming to the earth to live this sinless life, then to suffer at the hand of the Romans, and then be killed on the cross. In the New Testament, when the church meets, it begins to meet right from the start, meeting on the Lord's Day, meaning Resurrection Day of Jesus, Sunday, the first day of the week, not on Saturday. While the Sabbath had been at the end of the week and from Genesis all the way through the Gospels, we looked forward to Jesus coming so that we would enter that rest. Now, because of Jesus coming, that's where we start our week from with the assurance of Christ. We have this assurance that since Christ was raised on the dead on the first day of the week, we, uh, on Sunday, now, in a sense, Sunday, the Lord's Day, does not replace the Sabbath. Now watch. Rather, Sunday is a new commemoration celebrating that Jesus' sacrifice has been approved And that he truly is God incarnate, brought back to life by the power of God the Father. Just as the Lord's Supper communion is this new commemoration of the new and better covenant in Christ's blood compared to the Passover, which was the old type. Remember the Passover, the blood of the lamb on the door? That had just been, Passover had just been a shadow, just a type of things to come. So what happens to the Sabbath? What do we do with the Sabbath day? It is fulfilled in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. What's very interesting is that over the centuries, those believers that have argued that, no, 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 the Sabbath should still be kept on a Saturday. What happens is that they begin with the wrong assumption. They begin with a type of legalism that says keep the Sabbath day holy and keep it like the Pharisees did in John 5. Like if you can keep it well enough, then maybe you could earn God's favor. But that misses the entire point of the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. From the very beginning, the Lord's day, Sunday, has been the day we set aside as a church to make holy for Christ Jesus. We don't work. The people who work for us, we go, don't work for us on Sunday. What's interesting is that nine of the Ten Commandments of the moral law, the Old Testament Ten Commandments, are repeated in the New Testament. It's something that we should keep. Nine out of ten. Do you know which one is not mentioned in the New Testament as part of the moral law to keep (laughs) the sabbath one number four or do we so what do we call sunday the new sabbath some call it the christian sabbath some church fathers certainly have called it the christian sabbath and the new sabbath i think that's perfectly fine but i personally me personally i prefer prefer calling it the lord's day because it's on the lord's day my salvation was made secure Well, I promise you that we'll get back to John 5 soon. We've got another week on this, but it's the issue of the Sabbath, Sabbath rest, and that Jesus is both Lord over the Sabbath and that we have found our rest in knowing Christ Jesus. I really felt I like to take a deep dive into this because there's just so much false teaching about it. And so many of you have come to me and I'm like going, oh man, they really don't know, do they? So here's what I want to do. We're going to do one more week on this. But it's going to be application like crazy. The Lord's Day. What do we do with it? We're going to take it. How do we keep the Lord's Day in our age? And, and what we're going to uncover is something that I think that will give you a huge benefit. But before we end our time today, I want to touch on very briefly on Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 again. Therefore, A Sabbath rest remains for God's people. 
For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. The way to move forward in this life as a Christian is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Let's just be brutally honest here though. Living in the in-between. This wilderness is not easy. It's no cakewalk, is it? It's hard. There's suffering. There's pain. There's tears. But to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of all of that and to follow him is made all the easier by remembering three key things. Jesus, number one, has walked where we walk. He has faced every temptation, every bit of suffering we face. Two, there's a rhythm in following Jesus where when we come together each and every week, we talk together and filled up again by having his grace poured out on us from the word of God. And three, there's a day set for the return of Christ. What I'm saying is after this Sunday, there's one Sunday less. That day coming when we will enter into that promised land together where there'll be more, no more sin No more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. Let's pray. Mm. For you Christians that are hearing my voice, you listen close. Just take a moment as we pray. Is there sin that you have let creep in? That you have said, I'll just allow this little bit And it's strangling your walk with Christ. Maybe the people at home don't recognize you're a Christian anymore. Maybe the people at work. Will you take just a moment repent of that sin? You're forgiven of it, but repent of it. Now pursue Jesus. Will you do that? Become all that God wants you to be. God, I lift up my church to you. Would you help us to identify our sin in our life? Help us to take every thought captive and submit it to your word, to your Holy Spirit. Show us where we sin. Convict us, God, so that we can repent. Jesus, we want more of you. We want what you want for us. We want to become the creation, the person you have designed us to be. God, I pray that we would move beyond just a a kind of church that has some engagement to full engagement where the body of Christ, each individual member finds their place and matures in you. As you just continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want to talk to the people that are not Christians. You see, the world will tell you what being a Christian means is if you're good enough then God will notice and maybe let you into heaven but that's not what the Bible says in fact it's not even really close what happens is that Jesus calls us out of sin he calls us out of what the Bible calls spiritual death and he wakes us up It's called being born again. And you know how you do that? You know how you realize you've been born again? You go, I want to trust Jesus. All of this stuff that I'm talking about starting to click. Like you go, you're no good. You can't not sin. I mean, you you sin every day. I do too. But Jesus says, look, I I will forgive your sins. I'll take your sins, the sins, the debt you owe. I'll nail them to the cross. And on top of that, I will give you my righteousness, my goodness. So that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees the goodness of Jesus. So what's your response to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? There's nothing you do. There's no checkbox You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to die for your sins and to be raised on the third day and that he is coming back to take you home. So if you believe that, just say, I believe. 
and then end your prayer like this. God, help me to follow you all the days of my life. Show me how to plug into this church as a Christian. I want to start to know how to follow you, but I don't know much. Send people into my life. Thank you for saving me, God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.